microphones have just just been such a great tool for teaching patients throughout the their invention. Well, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to Luke chapter six as we uh, just kind of uh, begin to chip away at verses twelve through sixteen in Luke six as we're doing a little series on the chosen apostles. Let's say you are on the board of a a very large company. Uh, Maybe it performs some really important task for, uh, you know, the security of the United States or whatever. And uh, recently there's been a tragic accident and the CEO of the company, along with 11 of his, you know, top executive officers, uh, managers of the company have all died in a tragic plane accident. And as a board, as a member of the board of directors, you now have to find 12 qualified men to fill the positions of those who have died. Of course, there are many to choose from within the company, and there are thousands to choose from outside the company, from college students with basically no experience all the way up to you know, executive officers of companies that you might pirate and uh, bring over to your own company. The good part, though, is that the board has just started their three-year term, and they won't be replaced for three years. And so you've got three years to work with these 12 new men that you have to uh, find and appoint. So who are you going to choose? I mean, just think about it. Who are you going to choose? Probably find some well-educated people for certain Probably find some people who have a lot of experience in uh, business, especially the business that you are involved in. You're probably going to find people with good administration skills, good people skills, good reputation in the business world. And this is only logical. It's only understandable. Now, what do you think the chances would be of you and these other board members choosing An impulsive, outspoken fisherman with no experience in business or in your business in particular to be your CEO. And for the other three top executives, you're going to pick his three fishing buddies, two of whom have the reputation of being so outspoken that they're called the sons of thunder. For the other eight, you hire some other men, one who is known as a social traitor, another who is a political activist who's always in trouble with the government, a bunch of other people who are just nobodies, no experience, no education in your business. They're just obscure people, one short. I mean, that's it. To hire men like this would seem to be the death of your company and the height of incompetence and business insanity. But you know what? This is exactly what Jesus did. He was getting ready to launch the church into the world. The most important task that has ever been assigned to any 12 individuals. 
And he was going to launch these men into the world and they would turn the world upside down. And yet when he first, when they started out, they were sorry individuals. They had never taken a, a, a class in church growth. They had never taken a preaching class or the explosion evangelism class or how to share the four spiritual laws. Nothing. Four of them were fishermen. And that was it. And you know, you, you wonder how could Jesus put these men in charge? And more amazingly is for the last 2000 years, God has taken other losers. <laughs> other nobodies, you know, prostitutes to presidents and junior high students to old men. He's taken all these people who are just, you know, nobodies. And he continues to build his church here on earth. And that is, that's just amazing. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, God has chosen the things that are not to nullify the things that are in order that no one would boast. See, God could go pick all the smart people, the educated people, the rich people, the good-looking people, and then they would go out there and do his will, and then they would get all the glory. So God picks losers. Nobodies. People who are enslaved to drugs and enslaved to immorality and liars and cheaters and, you know, people who don't look all that wonderful on the outside. People who are just, you know, this people. And he takes these people and he transforms them by his grace so that people go, you know what? I knew this person before. They were nothing like this. And then he gets all the glory. And this is what we see him doing in Peter's life. Peter starts out and he's the leader of the 12 from the very beginning. And man, he is one messed up guy. I mean, he can catch fish, but that's about it. And what's interesting is God takes Peter from point A to point B. And when he gets to the end, he is a totally different guy. Well, if you were here last week, you probably know that I was going to preach on Peter. I only just barely mentioned him. I kind of got sidetracked during the week as I was studying. You heard a sermon about contentment. The reason you did is, is the text does have some principles that apply to contentment, even though it doesn't mention contentment specifically. But I began to think about, you know, when I'm reading the passage, I don't just read the verses that I explained to you, but I like to go back and read a chapter or two before and two or three after. And I'm constantly doing that as I'm as we're going through Luke And there's just some things that just amazed me about Jesus. I mean, this passage says he goes out and he chooses these 12 guys. And we might think, oh, yeah, well, what's the video? Well, these men are going to be the men. Upon the the church is going to be built. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles. 
And he's going to hand off to these men the task. And yet he just seems fine with it. And I, I just started thinking about that. And I started thinking about other things. That Jesus is perfect. He's living in a sin-cursed world. But he's content with that. He's rejected by the people of his own hometown. They try and throw him off a cliff. And he's content with that. He's constantly being opposed by the Jewish leaders who have been waiting for the Messiah. And here he is, but they won't accept him. But he's content with that. He's got a lot of people following him. But for the wrong reasons. And he's content with that. Beyond all of this, he knows that in less than three years, he's going to die a torturous death. And he's still content with that. And now he has to pick 12 men. He has three years to train them. And he's going to hand them the baton. And they are going to turn the world upside down. And he's content with that too. And we learn that he was content because he had a faithful prayer life. He was content because he trusted in the sovereignty of God. And he was content because he believed that God was able to change sinners into saints, Simons into rocks. And so this morning, as we come to the text, we're going to look at a little bit more about Peter. This is not all. We're going to come back. And Peter may turn into a five-part series. I'm not sure. We'll see. But this morning, I want to... Take some time to look at Peter's life. And so if you have your Bible, look at Luke chapter 6. And I'll read verses 12, 13 and the first part of 14. It says this, and it was at this time that he, that is Jesus, went off to a mountain to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also named apostles, Simon whom he also named Peter. B.B. Warfield, famous theologian, said, quote, No character in scripture history, we may even say in all literature, is drawn for us more clearly or strongly than Peter's. In the Gospels, in the Acts, in the Epistles, it is the same man that stands out before us in dramatic distinctness. Always eager, ardent, impulsive, he is preeminently the man of action in the apostolic circle and exhibits the defects of his qualities as well as their excellencies through life. His virtues and faults had their common root in his enthusiastic disposition. It is to his praise that along with the weed of rash haste, there grew more strongly and to his life, the fair plant of burning love and ready reception of the truth. He was treated with distinguished honor by his Lord. He was made the recipient of no less than three miracles in those early days of the Gospels. He was granted a special appearance after the resurrection, according to 1 Corinthians fifteen five. Jesus could find time in his own passion and while saving the world to cast on him a reminding glance and to bind up his broken heart. Accordingly, the life of Peter is Peculiarly rich in instruction, warning, and comfort for the Christian, and his writings touch the very depths of Christian experience and soar to the utmost heights of Christian hope. End quote. 
And that is exactly how it is. And you can imagine this week as I go into the office, I go, okay, we got to do something on Peter. Finding material is not a problem. It's how to package it. So what I did is I sat down and I went through all the gospels and I wrote down everything Peter did, everything he said, all the examples that specifically mentioned his name. And I thought, okay, what do we have here? And then I started reading books and reading dictionaries and reading things. And I thought, okay, I've got it. I've got to just, I had an epiphany. I thought, okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to break Peter's life up into three phases. His training phase, his early church ministry phase, and then his later life phase that we read about in the epistles. And that's the best thing I could do. I thought there's just so much data and so many things we could look at. I thought, well, we'll talk about the three phases of his life that are explained for us in the Bible And we can see how he was first trained by the Lord, then put into service and continued to learn. And then by the end of his life, he was just that rock that Jesus named him to be when he first met him. Now, before we look at the first phase of Peter's life, his training phase, I want to just give you a little micro bibliography, a little little. I should be biography, just a little bit of his life. And so you can understand where he was coming from and kind of the raw Peter when Jesus first met him. Peter was the son of Jonah or Jonas, possibly a form of the name John. Jonas was a fisherman in partnership with a man named Zebedee. Jonah had two sons. Peter and Andrew Zebedee had two sons, James and John, both Jonah and Zebedee were in business together, partnership fishing in the sea of Galilee. And it was their sons who they were training up in their business. Simon bar Jonah means Simon, son of Jonah. Simon was Peter's name before he met Christ. And Peter was the name Jesus gave him right off the bat. As soon as Jesus met him for the first time, he said, Simon, son of Jonas or Jonah, you should be called rock, the rock. Peter came to meet Christ the first time through his brother, Andrew, who came to him rather excitedly and said, we, we found him of whom the law and the prophets describe. And so Peter, Andrew, James, and John all became apostles. And not only apostles, they were the innermost circle of the apostles. That is, those apostles that trusted most by Christ and brought closest into his confidence. Jesus started with the foundation of four fishermen. Peter being the leader of the twelve. And as we mentioned last week, Peter's name does mean rock. The Aramaic equivalent of rock is Cephas. And so when you go through the Bible, what do you see? Sometimes he's called Simon, especially when he's bad. Sometimes he's called Simon Peter. Sometimes he's called Peter. And sometimes he's called Cephas. The Gospels tell us that Peter received three different calls 
to from Jesus to do different levels of things. His first call is found in John chapter 1 verses 42 where he is called to be a disciple. And a disciple just means a learner, one who learns. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know, to be a Padawan. Somebody who, you know, sits at the feet and learns from the master. So Jesus called Peter to be his disciple. Later on, in Luke 5.10, and we've already seen this, Jesus calls Peter to be his companion, his traveling companion, to leave his business and to follow him. And then our text here tells us that thirdly, Jesus called Peter to be an apostle, which means sent one or one sent with authority. Now, from the very beginning, Peter was the leader of the 12. Though messed up, he was still the leader. And this is very interesting. In every place where the apostles are listed, Peter's name is always listed first. And, you know, there is this common saying that leaders are born, not made. I mean, you've got to have this raw material, and that is true. Either by giftedness or by life experiences, people become leaders. But good leaders also require training. Just having the raw ingredients doesn't make you a good leader. You have to have some training. So at first, Peter was just a loud, boisterous, impetuous, aggressive, impulsive, speaking before thinking, overbearing kind of guy. One of these people that you you try and have a conversation with, but you can't because they are always speaking and you are always listening. They always have the right answers and you don't. And you just sit there and you just try and take it in as they yak and yak and yak and yak at you and uh, 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 type of a thing. And that is just a thumbnail sketch of Jesus. He's just, or or, or Peter, before he meets Jesus, he's just this loud, boisterous fisherman. And he works with the sons of thunder. So like a table made of very rough sawn wood, Peter has a lot of rough edges and a lot of splinters, and he's good at getting those splinters under people's skin. And so somewhere between when he first meets Jesus and the end of his life, he becomes a very polished individual. And what we want to look at this morning is how God got him to that place. How Jesus trained him in the training phase as we see in the Gospels. You see, when God calls a person to salvation, when the gospel is presented to somebody and that person understands that they are a sinner, they understand that Jesus died on the cross for their sins, that he was buried and rose again the third day, and that they need to turn from their sins and they need to place their faith in Jesus Christ, that commitment to Christ is a commitment to be a disciple, a learner. Now, you can be a disciple without being a Christian. As a matter of fact, you can learn about Jesus growing up in a Christian home. You can go to Juana as an unbeliever and learn about Jesus. You can be a faithful church attender and learn about Jesus in Sunday school and from preaching. You can be interested in Bible knowledge and the scriptures and be a student of Jesus. You can even like fiery sermons and be a disciple but not be saved. But if you are a Christian, if you are truly saved, you will be a disciple. Some of the people who followed Jesus in his ministry were disciples and they're described as disciples. But when Jesus started saying some hard things like, you know, you have to eat my flesh 
and drink my blood. Whoa, this guy's weirding out on us here, man. This guy's into the cannibal thing. Man, we, we, you know, I mean, you're, you're fun to watch do miracles, but man, we're out of here. And so they left him. They left him. And what you need to realize is that if you are a Christian, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a disciple. The question is, how good of a disciple are you? The other thing you need to realize is everyone here needs to be, according to scriptures, into one of three categories. One, you are being discipled by somebody else. Two, you are discipling somebody else. Three, you are being discipled and discipling somebody else. That is, some more mature person is discipling you, and you, in turn, are discipling somebody less mature. This is God's plan for every believer. Every believer needs to be doing this. Once you get mature in the Lord and you understand the scriptures and you've been founded in doctrine, then you just do it for other people. But as you're a new believer, somebody just does it to you. In between, you might have somebody mentor you while you mentor other people. And that's how it works. And that's how it's always worked. And that's how the church has grown and survived for the last 2,000 years. And so let's look at Peter's life now, this first phase of his life as Jesus trains him. And I want to give you seven principles of discipleship, which we learn from Jesus in his interactions with Peter. The first is this. Jesus took Peter along with him. We saw this in Luke 5. He called him to follow him, right? Mark 3.14 says this. He appointed the 12 that they might be with him. This is such an incredible part of discipleship. And a lot of people, I think today, you know, we're busy and we don't have much time. And so we want to disciple somebody. It's like, hey, you know, let's get together for a quick, you know, hour. You know, here, let's do this Bible study. Okay, I've discipled you later. You know, that's okay. It's okay to have a time where you do Bible study and you learn the word. But that's not all discipleship is about. You have to live in, in front of somebody. They need to be there when you hit your thumb with a hammer. They need to be there when somebody insults you. They need to be there when you encounter trials. They need to be there and see how you share your faith. They need to be there and be part of your life so that they can learn not only from your instruction, but from your example. And so we learn from this point, this first point, um, is that Jesus had his 12 disciples follow with him. And not only that, even among the 12, he took certain ones apart and gave them extra special privileges. For instance, it was only um, Peter, James, and John who were able to witness Jairus' daughter being raised from the dead. Now, you can imagine what happened when he did that. Come here. I want you to come in here for a second. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, what are we going to do, Lord? Well, just hang tight. Just watch. Um, but she's dead. I know. Uh, so he raises her from the dead. And then what do you think they, they did? They went, oh, interesting. They went back outside. They probably went, whoa, whoa, did you see that? And then they, what did they probably do then? 
They probably asked him a zillion questions. Lord, how'd you do that? Could you teach us to do that? I mean, that is incredible. And what do you think they told the other disciples? Man, you should have seen what happened. Went in there, man. She was stone cold, man. She was stiff as a board. You know, and Jesus just raised her from the dead all of a sudden. And she just, all her color came back and she just popped awake and started breathing. That was incredible. You should have seen it. But they didn't. But these three did. It was only those same three, Peter, James, and John, who were invited up to the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus peeled back his humanity, so to speak, and showed them his kingdom glory and Moses and Elijah. And man, Peter just about lost it. Man, Lord, shall I build three tabernacles? I mean, he was just like, whoa. And what do you think he did after that? He just went back and saw the other disciples and just went, yeah, we just saw Jesus in his kingdom glory. <laughs> Peter, I mean, he's had the th- sons of thunder with him too. Man, you should have seen what happened. I mean, he didn't have to take the other guys up there. You get these three guys up there, they'd tell everybody. And Jesus knew that, and that's why these guys were the leaders. The point is, though, the principle you need to learn is this. When you're discipling, you need to take people with you. They need to see you. They need to watch you live and see your house and see how you do things, how you apply Christianity to all areas of your life. Not just, you know, an hour at some restaurant or whatever. Everyone needs to be discipled or discipling or both. So not only did Jesus call the disciples to be with him. Secondly, Jesus taught Peter through question and answer. And this is important. You know, right now I'm just preaching at you. But listen, if you want to do some discipleship, some more intimate discipleship, you have to allow for question and answer. And we see this in Jesus' life. For instance, in John 6, verses 66 through 69, after Jesus spoke of himself as the bread of life, and many of his disciples left him, Jesus then asked, You do not want to go away also, do you? And the apostles are like, Hmm. Now, The whole crowd is leaving. And Jesus asked them this important question. Why? Because he wants them to think through the issues for themselves. And that's when Peter says, Lord, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. In Matthew 16, 15, Jesus asked the 12. Who do men say I am? Peter speaks up, of course. Yeah, some say, you know, you're Elijah. Some say, you know, you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say you're a great prophet. And then what does he ask him? No, who do you say I am? You see, that what, that's good. Jesus, all the way through the Gospels, is asking them questions. And he's not only asking them, but other people questions. So, so who did the will of his father? So what will be done to those, you know, wicked slaves? And this is one of Jesus' way of teaching because it gets people to think through the issues. And so as a disciple or of other people, you need to make sure you ask questions and don't just give people the answer. Make them think through the issues. And that's what we see Jesus doing for Peter and the other apostles and other people in the Gospels. Jesus also is faithful to answer their questions. Sometimes questions, you know, that weren't all that wonderful. 
How often do I need to forgive somebody? That's an interesting question. It's a good one. In Mark eleven twenty one, Peter asks, so Lord, how come this fig tree's withered after you cursed it? I mean, what happened there? In Mark 13, 3, it was Peter asked Jesus about the signs of his coming in the end of the age. In John 13, 23 through 25, it was Peter asked John to ask Jesus who would betray him. And you know what? Jesus answered the questions. He kept answering the questions. They asked lots of questions and he answered lots of questions. And if you're going to be a discipler or you're going to be, have somebody disciple you, you've got to answer and ask questions. I mean, when I was in seminary, I had a good reputation because, and I got my questions in. I would write questions down on a piece of paper and any, I don't care who, what professor it was in the hall. If I, they saw me coming, they knew they were going to get it. I mean, I'd ask them every weird question I could. Any question I had, I'd write it down. And to this day, Dr. Mayhew, whenever he introduced me, says, this is the most question-asking guy in the history of the seminary. I thought, hey, man, I got three or four extra free classes just in the hallway (laughs) asking questions. I got to learn. And, you know, sometimes when you're in the ministry and sometimes when you're discipling other, you can forget what it's like to not know anything. And you need to remember that people who are young in the Lord or immature in the Lord, they're just trying to figure out. They're just trying to figure it out. You know, they may ask you things like, do we really have to read our Bible? Hello. You know, oh, do we really have to abstain from immorality? Is Jesus really God? You know, and you can say, oh, what a dumb question. And then you will cut the throat of any other questions they might ever ask. And so you have to say, man, those are good questions. Those are brilliant. Man, you are a scholar. (laughs) I mean, you know, why discourage somebody? They're trying to get the answers. I mean, we're all there. We all start out as spiritual babies. And so as a discipler, man, you have to say, yeah, you have any questions you ask me. And if I don't know the answer... I'll get them for you. I'll find out what they are. But man, you know, ask questions. And that's what's neat about Jesus is he, we see him interacting with Peter throughout the gospels. He's constantly asking him questions and Peter's constantly asking questions and he's giving him answers and they're dialoguing. That is an important part of discipleship. So make sure that you have a forum for people. Don't just preach at people. Third, Jesus trained Peter by encouraging him with the promises of God. For instance, in Matthew sixteen eighteen, Jesus tells Peter, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. Now, there's a lot of discussion, and I don't want to get into who the rock is or whatever, whether it's Peter or his profession or whatever. The point is this, that was encouraging. I am going to build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Isn't that encouraging? It's encouraging because I'm telling you, you know, when you're in the ministry and I'm sure when you're an apostle, you know, you can get a Messiah complex easy. You know, sometimes you find yourself getting anxious. Oh man, If I don't do this, the whole church is going to come to a grinding halt. God needs me. Oh, get real. Like what Hendrick says, just get your finger out, stick it into a glass of water and pull it out. And the dent that's left is how significant you are. And you need to remember that God doesn't need you. You need God. God will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Even if Calvary Bible Church just turns into dust and we all die. 
He's still going to do it. He doesn't need us. We need him. And you need to realize, I mean, promises like this are encouraging when you're in ministry and there's opposition and things seem to be failing. You just, you just remember, listen, I may fail, but God's not. This church may fail, but God's not. God is not going to fail. In Luke twenty-two thirty-two, Jesus tells Peter, Satan is demanding permission to sift him like weak. But then Jesus gives, Jesus gives him this promise. He says, but listen, I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when once you have turned again, he gives him this little glimpse. You know what? You're going to blow it, but you're going to turn again. Wasn't that encouraging? I mean, that was encouraging. And what we need to realize is, you know, when Hebrews says that we need to not forsake the assembling of ourselves as the habit of some, but encouraging one another, how do you do that? With the promises of God. You remember the story in Pilgrim's Progress? I mean, they're in the dungeon of Doubting Castle. How did they get out of Doubting Castle? With the promises of God. Why? Because it was the promises of God that opened the door that let him out of the dungeon. And it was the promises of God that struck giant despair dead. I'm telling you, you've survived as a Christian off of God's promises. And, I, and people come into my office and people who are depressed. And, you know, I talk to them. I say, you know, you seem pretty bummed. And, yeah, you know, under the circumstances. It's like, what are you doing under there? Get out. And they have this, um, this just, you know, it's like somebody just sucked the joy out of them. I ask them, so what does the Bible say about this? I don't know. What does it say about this? I don't know. Well, that's why you're bummed out. You either don't know the promises or you're refusing to believe them. I mean, I could not survive without the promises of God. People ask me, you know, Jack, how do you deal with all the pressures and all the, you know, this and all the sin and confronting people, blah, blah, blah. And I just say, hey, I just realized, man, God's going to make it happen. I'm going to heaven. You kill me, I'm going to heaven. I live, I'm going to heaven. I'm going to heaven. God doesn't need me. I'm going to heaven. I'm a sinner. God's changing me. He promised to. If I die, he's going to change me quick. If I live, he's going to change me slow, but he's going to change me. It's fine. That's good, man. I'm happy about that. Yeah, but don't you know about so-and-so? I mean, aren't you concerned with our world? No. All the nations are but a speck of dust on the scales. They're like a drop in the bucket. God sits above the vault of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. But you know, I mean, you know, President so-and-so did this. It's like, hey... The king's heart is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns them wherever he wants. There is no authority except those which are established by God. I mean, it goes on and on, man. You get the promises down, man. You can handle it. But you don't have God's promises. If you don't recall those to mind, you're just, you're stressed. Why? Because who's in control? You know, what are you going to do? And the promises of God just give you hope. And what's neat is, as you go through the Gospels, Jesus is constantly telling them what God will do. God is going to. This is true. This is a promise. You know, I will give you another helper. You know, he just constantly tells them things to instill courage in them and boldness and fearlessness, which everybody needs. Every single Christian needs. 
And you need to take time when things start falling apart around you to remember the truth of God's promises. Because they are what keep you going. Fourth, Jesus trained Peter by rebuking him when he needed it. And rebuking has really fallen on hard times in the church. You know, you don't, I don't want to go confront anybody because it might hurt their feelings. They might leave the church. They might not like me. They might get mad at me. Well, who are you thinking about? Me, me, and me. That's not love. Love doesn't think about me. Love thinks about what is best for the other person. In Matthew 16, Jesus told the disciples he was going to Jerusalem, suffer and be killed at the hands of the Jewish leaders. Then Peter wanted everybody to know, this will never happen to you, Lord. And you know what Peter was saying? Listen, I love you. You're my buddy. And I don't want anybody hurting you because I like your companionship. I, I, I. He was thinking about himself, his comfort, his friend, what he wanted. The text says, Peter took him aside, began rebuking him. This is the Lord. God forbid it, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But then Jesus turns to him and says, now you can just imagine this. Peter's got, he's got a good heart. He's trying to do what's right. You know, it seems like all of his motives are clean. Get behind me, Satan. That's a interesting starter. You are a stumbling block to me. A scandalon is what that word meant. You're scandalous. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's, which when translated means you're selfish. Ow. Ow. Now, was Jesus being unloving to Peter? No. He needed that. Peter needed to learn his place. Jesus was Lord. He was not. Jesus knew the father's plan. He didn't. Jesus was submitting to God. He wasn't. As a matter of fact, he was aligning himself with God's enemy by trying to prevent Jesus from doing the very thing that Jesus came to earth to do. Did it hurt him? I'm sure it just struck him through to the core. But you know what? Rebuke. We need it in the church. I remember a guy taking me to lunch when I was first in the ministry. And I I forget this situation, but I was supposed to do something. I didn't do it. I don't know what happened if I just forgot or whatever. But I didn't follow through and someone's feelings got hurt. And so this guy, and this guy loved me, took me out to lunch. So how's the family? How's the wife? How are the kids? How's the, how do you like ministry? And oh man, you're doing a good job teaching. And then all of a sudden, out comes the hammer. It's like, yeah, I got something to tell you. It's like, what? Do you know? Pow! You dropped the ball. It's like, I did. Weren't you supposed to do this? Uh, yeah. Did you do it? No. You dropped the ball, man. You sinned against this person. You were unfaithful, man. The guy just railed into me. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm sorry. You know, and he goes, well, you don't be sorry to me. You need to go apologize to so-and-so. You need to go make it right with so-and-so. You need to, you need to not do this ever again. And believe me, that was like the, the beginning of <laughs> people ask me, you know, you know, how, you know, when you get notes and people, when do you respond as soon as I can? I mean, I learned my lesson, man. You don't procrastinate when you're dealing with people. 
Try and get back as fast as you can. Do I still drop the ball? Yeah, I still do it, but not as much. The whole point is, is I needed the rebuke. It was good for me. You know, so when you see somebody, you're discipling, you see some sin in their life, you go up to them, pull them aside, you drill them for their good because you love them because they need to hear it. It's good for them. Rebuking isn't fun, but it's necessary. Proverbs 27, 5 and 6 say, Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. Proverbs 28, 23 says, He who rebukes a man will afterward find more favor, favor than he who flatters with the tongue. Jesus said it this way in Matthew eighteen fifteen: If your brother sins, go show him his fault in private. You have blown it. That is a rebuke. Paul tells us even that in Galatians 2, that even after the church was started, Peter went to Antioch, started associating with some Judaizers, and then he had to go there and rebuke Peter to his face because he was a hypocrite. He stood condemned because he was aligning himself with the Judaizers who were preaching a false gospel. Paul says in 1 Timothy 5.20, elders who continue in sin are to be publicly rebuked in the presence of the whole congregation. See this elder here? This elder has been sinning. See this elder here? This elder has disqualified himself. See this elder here? He has been wrong. Now you repent and tell the whole congregation you've blown it. So that the rest will be fearful of sinning. And I'm telling you, you would be. Everybody would be. And some people think, well, gosh, if I rebuke somebody, maybe they're going to get mad at me. Maybe they're not going to listen to correction. Maybe they're going to lose their friendship. Yeah, there's a certain category of people that, that don't want to hear reproof or rebuke. Listen to how Proverbs describes them. In Proverbs 1, 22 through 33, it describes them as naive, simple-minded scoffers and fools. Proverbs ten seventeen says, those who will not hear reproof go astray. Proverbs 12.1 says, he who hates reproof is stupid. Proverbs 15.10 says, he who hates reproof will die. Proverbs 17.10 says, a rebuke goes deeper into one who has understanding than a hundred blows into the back of a fool. Proverbs 29.1 says, a man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. You get the point? You don't want to receive rebuke? You don't want to receive reproof? Then you are a foolish, naive, stupid, stubborn, on your way to death person who will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. That's what Proverbs say. That's not a good place to be. Reproof is a good thing. I mean, you ask yourself, did Jesus love Peter? Of course he did. Did Jesus want to see Peter grow? Of course he did. Did Jesus always do what was best for Peter? Of course he did. Did Jesus rebuke Peter? You bet. Whenever he needed it, he laid into him. Because he loved him. You remember how Paul charged Timothy, timid Timothy. You know, Mr. You know, I don't, I don't like conflict. And, you know, I mean, you know, I'm trying to do the ministry here. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus is to judge the living and the dead as appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. He says, I want you to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience, gentleness, and instruction. You look up those words, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Those are hard words. He says, man, you hit them because they need it. 
Preaching is all about reproving and rebuking and exhorting. And it's not always fun, especially if you know as a preacher that you're a sinner, that you're not perfect. And here you are, you're taking this perfect message and you're preaching it to these people. And it's not fun. You know, you want to get out there and you want to get hit. Somebody hit me. Now, I'm telling you, the sermons I like to hear are the hardest ones. I don't want to hear any wimpy sermons, man. I want people to just waste me. I mean, the harder the sermon, the better it is. I want to be powder when I'm done. Dust. And I like that. I don't want to hear this. Well, you know, I got some things to share with you. It's like, I I could share pie. (laughs) Share candy. And I want to be hit hard. And if you're a man pleaser, if you fear men, if you love yourself, this brings a snare, the Proverbs say. The fear of man brings a snare. I think one of the things the church needs to do, especially in our discipleship relationships, if you are discipling somebody and you know they have a problem, you are responsible before God to gently but faithfully rebuke them. This is not good. This part of your life is not right. The scriptures say this and bring that rebuke on them because you love them and that is good for them. Fifth, Jesus trained Peter by relating to his past experiences. You know, this is just amazing. When you go through the gospel, you see things like this happen. And, you know, I used to be a fanatic fisherman, so I I pick up on all fishing things, you know. I've got radar, fishing radar. And so I, I pick up these, especially when I read the Bible. And we've already seen the one example when Jesus wants to get the, you know, these four guys to follow him and leave their fishing career, which they like. He makes sure they don't catch fish all night. Then when after they've all got their stuff all prepared and they're coming in and it's daytime and the fish aren't biting and they're in a bad location, he says, you know, cast out your nets again. Oh, great. And so they do. And they catch this miraculous load of fish, which is just what those four fishermen needed to experience. They knew it was a miracle. They knew they wouldn't catch anything. They knew it was a bad time. And they knew they were in a bad place. And then they caught more fish than they ever did. They knew it was God. And that Jesus had something to do with it. You see, God met them in the place where they were at. They related to fishing. I I just see this in the scripture. You remember in Matthew 17, when Peter asked Jesus, you know, what do you think? You know, do you think we should, you know... Pay the two drachma temple tax? I mean, after all, you are perfect. You know, you don't really use the temple, the sacrifice. At least I've never seen you offer a sacrifice. Uh, You know, should we bother with that? And then what does Jesus tell him? Go fishing. Peter had left fishing. You know, you're a good fisherman, Peter. Why don't you go fishing? Catch a fish, open its mouth, and take out the coin. What? I have caught thousands of fish, Lord, and none of them have ever had a coin in their mouth. Right? I mean, I've caught thousands of fish. There's never been a coin in any of their mouths. I caught one with a hook in its mouth one time. That was it. And so what does Peter do? He's probably smiling. Okay. All right. I'll go out there. I'll go fishing. So he gets out his little, you know, stick and a string. I don't know. Maybe a net. I don't know. He goes out there. He starts fishing. He catches a fish. Pulls it in. Opens its mouth. Well, coin. Now, what do you think he did? 
He probably came back, especially to James, John, and Andrew, and said, Guess what? I was talking with Jesus about paying the temple tax, and he told me to go catch a fish, open its mouth, and there will be a coin in there. <laughs> and you know what he said? I went and did it. I caught a fish just to humor him. I'd open its mouth, and look in there! Look, it's still in there! Look at that! And all those fishermen knew, man, this is a miracle of God. The chances of that happening are zero. And that was just what they, those fishermen needed, those loud fishermen. And, of course, the loud fishermen would tell all the other apostles and probably everybody else, you know, all the way to the end of their life. Yeah, did I ever tell you the story about the time Jesus sent me down to catch a fish with a coin in his mouth? And it just amplified who Jesus was. But the neat thing is, is Jesus met them where they were at. He taught them, you know, parables of dragnets and all these things they were very familiar with so they could learn important truths. And you need to do this, too, when you're discipling people. Don't make everybody come to your place where you are in your life. You go to them. So what are your hobbies? What are your interests? Where did you grow up? Oh, you grew up on a farm, you know, try and give them some farming stuff. You know, what does this tell you about? What does that tell you about? You know, you're into computers. Okay, use computer lingo. You know, do what you can to try and teach people God's truth, but meet them where they're at. That's where Jesus did. It's great. Six, Jesus trained Peter by being patient with him. And of course, this is just obvious. You know, that Peter said some things that were really bad. And Jesus just responded with this calm grace. Matthew nineteen twenty seven. Peter says, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. What's in it for us? I mean, how mercenary. So what are we getting out of it? And Jesus patiently answers him in Luke twenty two twenty four. We hear we find the apostles again arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven for the third time. This is the third time just recorded. I mean, over those three years, they might have done it 20 times. We have three re- uh, different instances recorded in the Gospels. They're arguing, yeah, yeah who's going to be the greatest? Is it going to be me, Lord? Is it going to be so-and-so? And Jesus, every time, patiently answers their question. Now, man, you know, let me tell you, the servant is the greatest. And he's so kind with them. He's so patient with them. You remember that during the Last Supper, Jesus said, I'm going to wash your feet. And Peter says, Lord, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus goes, well, Peter, if that's how I feel about it, then you will have no part with me. Okay, Lord, just give me a whole bath. Everything, my head, my hands, everything. And what's interesting here is is Peter is just over here. And then he's over here. I mean, he's everywhere. And Jesus is just fine. He's just like, Peter, just chill out, dude. You only need your feet washed. Just Relax. Relax, it's okay. In the garden, right before Jesus is taken away, Peter, in rashness, you know, takes out his sword and hacks off Malchus's ear, trying to take his head off. Jesus says, Peter, put the sword away. Just this incredible patience. I mean, he's going to go be crucified now, and he's still, you know, do you find this? I don't know, this probably only happens to me. But what I am really tired 
And I have a lot of things to do. And people interrupt me. Sometimes I can be grumpy. <laughs> Especially to my children. <laughs> For Christmas, my kids made me this little plastic card that said patience on it. Please use this frequently. (laughs) That's how your kids rebuke you. Yeah, that is important. That is so important to have patience. Patience, patience, patience. That's why Paul told Timothy to preach with great patience, gentleness instruction. Do you know why that is? Here it is. Because people grow in the Lord at God's rate, not yours. And every seminary student especially needs to learn this. People grow through the word, but they grow through God's at God's rate, not yours. In his timing, not yours. In his way, not yours. You just do what you're supposed to do, and then you let God. You know, one man waters, another man plants, but it's God who causes what? The growth. So you got to have patience. You just got to have patience. If you aren't patient, you will just frustrate yourself. Oh, what's wrong with these people? I found Bible study here for two weeks and they're still sinners. (laughs) Seventh, Jesus trained Peter by giving him opportunities to serve. And this is so great. And this is something that I've tried to do in my ministry. You know, you see in, for instance, in John 10, Jesus sends out the 12 and he says, go preach man and go get them. And they go out and they have successes and they have failures. You know, at one point they came back and somebody came back and said, Hey, I've got my demon possessed son. You know, we took him to your disciples, but they couldn't handle it. And so Jesus had to talk to him about that. But you know what? You you saw somebody up here leading music this morning that usually isn't up here. Why are they up here? Because they need some practice. There's only one way to learn how to make pots. And that's what? Make pots. Yeah. You know, if you want to learn how to type real fast, be a quick typist. You can read all the books on typing theory you want. But man, you've got to type. And if you don't type, you'll never get good. That's just all there is to it. You want to be good at ministry? You have to have opportunities. And so as a discipler, you take somebody, you train them, you give them the knowledge. Then right before the event, you give them specific information. Then you let them do it. And sometimes they fail. And then after they fail, then you talk to them again and you get boned up. So they learn a little bit more. So next time they can do it again. And you keep doing that and doing that. That's how discipleship is. I mean, every time, you know, you see a new guy up here preaching and believe me during the, you know, weeks before that. Okay. Let's see your outline. Okay. Let's see your text. Okay. You know, flesh it out. All right. You know, where's your application? Okay. How are you going to do this? And slowly over a period of time, people get better and better and better. But you know what? It's a sacrifice because you can do it better. You can do it easier. It's always easier for just you to do it. And you know what? When you train somebody else, you have to sacrifice your time and your effort and your energy. It's hard to train somebody. And then you always have to wonder they might be better than you. And some people get jealous before the person is better. I'm not going to train anybody. I mean, if this guy learns how to fold bulletins better than me, I might be out of a ministry. You know, it's okay if they fold better. It's okay if they preach better or teach better or do whatever you do better in your ministry. That's good. 
But every one of us should be training up other people, investing in them. And this is what we see Jesus doing to Peter and to all the apostles. And that is how Peter got from point A, rough son Peter, to fine polished Peter at the end. Because Jesus took time. So I ask you this as you leave here today. Are you taking people along with you? Are you training others through question and answer? Are you encouraging others with the promises of God? Are you rebuking others when they need it for God's glory and their good? Are you making an effort to relate to those who are you are discipling? Are you being patient with those you are discipling, letting God grow them at his rate, not yours? Are you giving those you are discipling opportunities to serve and then giving them feedback and instruction both before and after to help them become better in what you do? And this is what it means to be a disciple. And this is how all of us change from one glory to the next and because become better ministers of Jesus Christ. Make sure... You're involved in this process because this is God's plan for everybody here who knows him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what we learned so far from the life of Peter. Father, there is so much here, and I know that we're only going to barely touch on it. But I just pray that all of us at Calvary Bible Church would have a discipling, discipler mindset. And if we need some training, that we would seek somebody out to give it to us. And that, Father, if... If it be or will that we might train somebody else or maybe do both. Father, as we seek to do your will and your way, help us to remember Jesus's example. Help us to remember Peter and where he started and where he ended. And Father, help us to realize that you have told us and you have modeled for us how people are to grow in you. And it happens through discipleship. So as we preach the gospel And share Christ with other people and they come to know you. May we be faithful to teach them everything you taught us. And to help them practice everything you taught us. Because we know this is your will. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.